I'm Rachel Grimm, and welcome to the podcast with all your mind. I'm here to help us understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back. This is Rachel, and this is with all your mind. And I'm going to start doing random facts for you right as we jump out of the gate here. Um, every once in a while, I feel like I'm just running into some information and I haven't even said hi yet or how are you? <laughs> so as an effort to slow myself down a bit, I'm going to tell you about some of the random inventions that Ryan and I have thought of over the years. Okay, here's number one. Here's my most practical, would really love to do this invention idea. And that is, have you ever gotten out a box of band-aids and there's only the big size left and you only really wanted the little size? Hmm? I hate that. I'm always using the little band-aids for my boys because they have little fingers. And then we end up with a box full of big band-aids. But you can't buy just the little band-aids. Anyway, what we thought would be a cool idea is if you could buy individual dispensers, we'll call them dispensers first, of one size of band-aids. But they're not in boxes. They're in something that looks more like a tape dispenser, a scotch tape dispenser. And all you have to do is pull out a Band-Aid, rip it off using that scotch tape dispenser, and you can get each size that you want. And when you run out of that size, you go and buy more of that size. And the, the containers, the scotch tape dispensers, click together so that you have all of your Band-Aids all together and all organized by size all together. Isn't that a brilliant idea? Can somebody do that? Because we're not like uh, engineers who can write out plans and we're not marketers who will market any of this. But I guess basically if anybody wants to invent this, have at it. (laughs) There's your idea. All right, (laughs) that out of the way. Hi guys, how's it going? So I thought I would also remind us of the theme for this season And that is the nature and history of the Bible. For each episode that we have, it's going to give us information and background on context on why do we interpret the Bible that way? Or why do we have that idea in mind when we read this passage? Or why do we use that phrasing for this verse? Or why did the church tend to think this way or do things this way? when it concerns the Bible. Every episode in this entire season will give us information to help us understand those questions, all right? So whenever we have an episode and you're confused as to why I'm saying something, think, does this help me understand the context of the Bible, either through its historical context or its modern context? Does this help me to understand why we use particular words or why we understand things in particular ways, that's what I'm going for for this season, okay? So just some additional context and to settle in what this episode is about. This episode is early translations of the Bible. Now you might wonder why, what does that have to do with today? We have different translations today. Why do we care about first translations of the Bible? Well, some of them are still read today. Some of them are still used in scholarly research today. And some of them actually gave us words that we still use in our English Bibles today. Okay, so 
We're talking about three early translations of the Bible today, and all three of them are actually pretty interesting and pretty important for understanding the Bible. But before we start in on that, we need a little bit of a recap on what languages the original books of the Bible were written in. When the first author wrote down his first copy, what was he writing in, right? So we, if you remember from the first episode of either this season or last season, we talked about this in both, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The first of those books was written in what was called a proto-Hebrew, and that's just meaning the written form of it was more like hieroglyphics than the straight lines we see in modern Hebrew or biblical Hebrew. Um, so the written language was proto-Hebrew, but generally speaking, is Hebrew, right? And a couple of the books were written in Aramaic or partially in Aramaic, such as Daniel and Ezra. Now, Hebrew, Semitic language of the ancient Near East, and Aramaic, Semitic language of the ancient Near East, are very similar. They have shared vocabulary. They have a shared alphabet. They have very similar grammar, different just structures where there's details that are different. But generally, I can read Aramaic even though I've never studied it formally. I have a class waiting for me to do online, but I have to finish my Greek classes before I do that. So Aramaic, very similar, pretty easy to know and understand if you already know Hebrew. Now, I want to talk about the relationship between Hebrew and Aramaic. Why was Aramaic used in the Bible? This will be important for later, okay? So just hang with me. Hebrew is the language of the Jews. It's a very ethnic language, meaning one ethnicity used this language. Aramaic, on the other hand, was an ethnic language. It was used by one people, but then it eventually got used as a trade language. That means that several people groups used it as their common language to do business, to just talk with one another. And then it just spread and spread as a very good trade language in the same way that English is used as a trade language today. If you travel to Europe or Africa or Asia, South America, Australia, obviously, you're going to find people that speak English and you'll be able to get by using English. In the same way, in the ancient Near East, Aramaic was the same way. It was a very good language to know if you wanted to travel, if you wanted to do business, if you wanted to send messages. And very importantly, it had a written language. It had a written alphabet so that you could write down messages in it. If you remember, you can't take that for granted with ancient Near Eastern languages. Not all ancient Near Eastern languages had a written form. So if you had a written form and you were a widespread language, you were golden. You were going to be used for a while as Aramaic was. So when Israel was conquered by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, Babylonians were using Aramaic at the time. And then Greece rolled through with Alexander the Great, and he picked up Aramaic too. And he's like, yeah, you guys already know Aramaic. Okay, we'll use Aramaic and Greek. Greek's my language, but hey, Aramaic is working. I understand. Let's use that too. And then the Roman Empire did the same thing. They used Latin, but they also used Aramaic because it was such a widespread language, okay? So Aramaic is a very important language of the ancient Near East. 
You don't want to downplay it or say, uh, Aramaic, it was just like a little backwater language. Nope. No, it was not. Okay. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and there are small portions written in Aramaic and the New Testament was written in Greek and the time periods they were written in. The Old Testament was written from about 1400 BC to about 400 BC. So over a span of a thousand years ending in about 400 BC. The New Testament was written between 50 and 150 AD. So it was only written within a hundred year span of time. But get this, before the New Testament was ever written, there was a Greek form of the Old Testament. And we call that one the Septuagint. Okay, Septuagint, it's a fun word. (laughs) It comes from Latin. I don't know (laughs) why. It's a Greek document. (laughs) It's a Greek document and it has a Latin name. That's because Latin is a homewrecker, you guys. Latin is a homewrecker. That's my pet peeve is Latin. Okay, anyway, so the Septuagint, it was written about the 200s BC. So this is during the time that Greece was the major empire of the ancient Near East. It spread from Greece all the way out to India and down to Ethiopia at this time. And, you know, give and take because Alexander the Great conquered all of those places, but then he, they lost territory after he died. But Egypt was under Greek control during the 200s BC. And in Egypt, there's a city called Alexandria. Alexandria had a major library there. Now, when we mention a library, we are so accustomed and used to hearing about libraries that we think, okay, they had a library, no big deal. It kind of was a big deal. Libraries were not so common in the ancient world. Somebody had to run them. Uh, Writing was not a very common hobby or academic pursuit. You mostly talked about ideas and spread them by talking about them, by having conversations, by having groups of people come together. So having a library in Alexandria was kind of a big deal, but this was not just any library. This was one of the biggest and best libraries in the entire ancient world. And we don't have good records of what exactly they had there, though we know that they tried to collect every document and book that they ever heard of that had any worth to it if they thought oh there seems to be some good information here or this is an interesting story they actually tried to get copies of every single book that they ever heard of that seemed like a good book so there were anywhere between 40,000 and 400,000 books at the library in Alexandria and remember when I'm talking about books I'm talking about scrolls, either leather scrolls or papyrus scrolls. And this library heard about the Jewish Bible, the Jewish Old Testament, the Tanakh, from somewhere. And, you know, Egypt is not far from Israel. They share a border. And they wanted this book at their library. And there's different legends surrounding the writing of this Greek translation of the Jewish Old Testament. And, and you would think, why? Why, why? why not just collect it in Hebrew? Well, because people would want to read it, and Hebrew was not spoken by everybody. It was spoken by Jews in Israel. Now remember, after the Babylonian captivity, 
Jews often learned the language of where they ended up living. So there were Greek-speaking Jews in Egypt at this time. There were Greek-speaking Jews in Greece at this time. There were Jews all over the place, and they learned the language of where they were living. But there was actually a very big population of Jews in Alexandria in the 200s BC. They actually even built a second temple there, a replica temple in Alexandria. So there was a very good-sized Jewish population in Alexandria. So now we have two reasons that Alexandria would have wanted a Greek copy of the Old Testament. One, for the library. Two, for the Jews that lived there, they wanted to have the Old Testament in their own own language. Even though Hebrew was the language of their ancestors, it was not the language of their everyday common speaking. So the library at Alexandria and the government in Egypt at the time commissioned a copy of the Old Testament to be made in Greek. And there's different legends, like I said, surrounding its writing. And so we'll talk about a couple of them because one, they get they get more uh, elaborate <laughs> as time goes on. So the first part of the Septuagint, the first five books of the Bible, are probably what were copied and translated first. And it was probably in the 200s BC. The first story, which is probably closer to the truth, is that there were 72 elders, six from each tribe of Israel, that were secluded away on an island off the coast of Alexandria, and they translated at least the Pentateuch, or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, in 72 days. And then the Alexandrian Jews gathered to hear the new translation, right? They wanted to hear how it sounded in Greek. And when they heard it, they were very happy with it, and they had a ceremony and a celebration for it, and they pronounced a blessing and a curse on it, just like you hear in Deuteronomy. And the blessing and the curse was, if you add to this or change this Bible, this Old Testament, you're cursed, and we bless anybody that reads it. So they really felt strongly about this Greek copy of the Torah and of the uh, whole Old Testament, whatever they had. We're not sure how much they had at the beginning, but they really felt strongly about it, that this was the word of God and we were going to treat it as divinely inspired. Another story told by Philo, who was a Jewish scholar from Alexandria, but he lived about a hundred years later, was that each of the 72 translators were put in separate rooms. And then they finished each one of them doing an individual translation. So each guy was working on the same material. And then they all came out together and they compared their translations and they're like, it's a miracle of God. They're all exactly the same. This was a legend to promote the divine inspiration of this Greek version of the Bible. Clearly that wasn't the case. There weren't 72 guys that completed translating the Tanakh or even just the Torah in 72 days, and everybody had the exact same thing. That's impossible. But the Greek-speaking Jews of the time, and even later, believed this version of the Bible to be divinely inspired, that it was just as divinely inspired as the original Hebrew written text. It was such a, a strong belief that in the 400s AD, so nearly 700 years later, there was a riot (laughs) 
when wording was changed to this Greek Old Testament. So what do we know? What else do we know about this Greek Old Testament Septuagint? Well, the important thing is that we know that at times, Jesus, the apostles, and Paul all quoted from the Septuagint. They didn't always quote from the Hebrew Old Testament. Sometimes they quoted from a Greek version of it, right? How do we know that? Well, sometimes there are parts of verses or different wording that's used in the Septuagint that is not in the Hebrew Old Testament. So they can compare the wording and say, ah, that doesn't sound like the Hebrew Old Testament. That sounds like the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, especially in places where a completely different word is used that has a different connotation from the original. And we'll talk about the importance of that in a bit. And people and scholars today still care about it because it's not only just the oldest translation of the Bible, but it also shows what people believed about the Old Testament because there are always words and phrases in the Hebrew Old Testament that we just don't even know what that word means. We can have a decent idea. We use context clues. We figure out generally what it's talking about, but we don't know exactly what that one little word means. So when you're doing translation work, you have to put something in there. And sometimes, sometimes the solution is just put that Hebrew word in there. That's why we have words like Maranatha and Hallelujah and Raka and Abba and all of these different words that are not in English. Those are Hebrew or Aramaic words that were like, you know what, let's just leave it how it was, either because we don't have all of the same connotations within one word in English, or we're just not quite sure what to do with that. Same thing goes with Leviathan. What is Leviathan? Does anybody have like a quick, simple answer? Or would you have to go look at the passage that has Leviathan in it and be like, uh, it might be, right? Leviathan is not English. So sometimes when you're translating, you just put that original word in. Here's another good one, Selah. It's in the Psalms a lot, and it means a pause. But it doesn't just mean a pause. It means pause and contemplate. (laughs) We don't have a good word for that in English, so they just put in the Hebrew word. So sometimes when they're translating the Greek Septuagint, they did that. But other times, they translated it. They put in a Greek word. So they had to think and take a guess or use what people knew at the time of this is our established interpretation of this verse. We're going to use this word because that's what we know, right? So studying the Septuagint today still tells us what people in the 200s BC were interpreting scriptures to mean, which is pretty interesting, right? It's a little glimpse back in time. It's like a time capsule for biblical interpretation. Now back to Jesus and the disciples quoting from the Septuagint. When I first heard about this, I was a little bit shocked, kind of like, what? Jesus wouldn't have always used the Hebrew Old Testament? And then it became kind of comforting to me that even Jesus used a translation of the Bible. And he never seemed to be worried about it, right? He never seemed to be like, hey guys, We need to start a cultural revolution to get back to reading the Bible in its original languages. You don't read that anywhere in the Gospels, do you? Jesus was unconcerned, it seems, 
with which translation of the Bible he was reading from. He didn't turn it into a political argument or a discussion on cultural relativity or something like that, right? He read his Bible and he talked about it and he used it. He didn't fight over it. Here was another surprise that I had about the Septuagint though. The Septuagint is talked about by Christians and evangelicals a lot when they talk about um, academic and scholarly stuff. And so I always assumed that the Septuagint was something really Protestant, <laughs> if that makes sense. And it is. But what I didn't know, the Septuagint is not just the Hebrew Old Testament as Protestants know it. It is sometimes, not all the time, the Hebrew Old Testament with the apocryphal books. And we'll talk about the Apocrypha in another episode, but you also might know these books as the Deuterocanonical books. And what we learn about that is that there was not a uniform form of the Septuagint. And the oldest version of it that we have today, by the way, is from the 400s AD. So when you talk about the Septuagint, it's not like we have that first copy written down that was at the library at Alexandria, which burned down, by the way, so we know we don't have the original. We have a copy from about seven, no, sorry, 600 years after it was first written. And so when people talk about the Septuagint, they're talking about the Greek Old Testament. They're talking about the Old Testament in really old Greek. There's not one version of it that is the version sent from heaven or something like that. So there's not a uniform Septuagint that defines for us exactly which books were in the Septuagint. Some of the Greek translations of the Old Testament had just the Jewish scriptures. Sometimes it had one or two or three of the apocryphal books. Sometimes it had all of them. And the apocryphal books are the ones that are included in the Catholic Bible. And there are about 12 or 13 books that are not included in the Protestant Bible. So just a good thing to keep in mind that if you're familiar with the Septuagint and have heard of people using it, they're not referring to one form of it, just as we don't have one form of the Hebrew Old Testament or the Christian New Testament. We have different manuscripts and we use them in different ways to have different editions of modern English Bibles. Same thing goes with the Greek Septuagint. Now, you can look it up online. You can find it. It'll only be in Greek online. I don't think there are any English versions available, which would by, be, by the way, a double translation. It would be from Hebrew to Greek to English. I do have an English version on my laptop, um, but you can look at it online and see the Greek Septuagint. So there's the Septuagint, very important for scholarly information, but also interesting to learn that Jesus and his disciples, they were living in a Greek society, they were living under Greek influence, read from a translation. They did not always read from a Hebrew Bible. All right, next up, and we're going to spend a little bit less time on this one. This one's a little bit more obscure. You won't know this one so much. It's called the Peshitta, and I love the name of this one. This is the Aramaic Old Testament, and I love the name. It just sounds fun, Peshitta, the Peshitta. 
And I like it because I can also understand what it means because it's very similar to Hebrew. In Hebrew, the word would be pashut. And in Aramaic, it's peshita. And it means simple. It's the common language in Aramaic. So people were speaking Aramaic and its variation, Syriac, from about 500 BC as a common language. We just talked about that at the beginning, right? There were plenty of Jews that only understood Aramaic. So because so many of the Jews only spoke Aramaic or were not as familiar with Hebrew, there was a tradition started after the Babylonian captivity that when people were in the synagogue and the Bible, the Old Testament, was being read in Hebrew, because remember, there was no Aramaic or other translations at this time, when it was being read in Hebrew, sometimes they would do real-time Aramaic translations. So you can just imagine at the UN or when the president is speaking at some address and there's a translator standing off to the side for sign language, or at the UN when they're doing translations in real time for all the diplomats' uh, home languages, they would do the same thing in synagogues but with Aramaic. So the reader would read the Hebrew and then somebody else would be standing off to the side repeating it all in Aramaic. And this was done purely orally for a while. They, they didn't write down the Aramaic translation. They just spoke it at the same time that it was being spoken in Hebrew. And they did that to keep the sanctity of the Bible. They believed that Hebrew was the right language for the Bible and they weren't going to translate it because that would mess it up, blah, 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 blah. But eventually those translations that people were reading or saying while the Hebrew was being spoken, they were eventually written down, and those are called the Targums. But the whole translation of the whole Old Testament was eventually written down, and this was the second oldest translation of the Bible, and it was written possibly as early as the time of Jesus. And a complete version of the whole Bible, Old and New Testaments, was available as early as the 2nd century AD, which is pretty much right after all of the New Testament books were written, right? So it was called the Peshitta because it means simple, meaning used by the common people. It was translated by both Jews and Christians. Jews would have probably translated the Old Testament, and Christians would have probably translated the New Testament since it would only really be Christians that were interested in the New Testament that early. And there were actually different versions of this Bible very early because a guy named Tatian, don't get him confused with Titian, he's a, I think, Renaissance painter. This is Tatian. He lived from 120 to 180 AD. He wrote his own version in Aramaic called the Diatessaron, which means according to the four. It was a harmonization of the Gospels. You know how you can buy a Bible that has the Gospels all kind of combined into one story so that you get every single fact from every single book all in one stream? This guy did the same thing in like 160 AD. So can you imagine that you're a new Christian living in Syria, speaking Aramaic, and you only have a harmonization of the Gospels as your whole Bible. That's all you got. <laughs> Some people had that. Some people, the only thing they had was a harmonization of the Gospels, and that was the only Bible you ever knew. So 
When I hear conversations of people who are talking about different editions and translations of the English Bible, and they're arguing about it, I think, dude, (laughs) we should just be really happy that we have so many choices. And if choice gives us opportunity to argue, maybe we should have less choice or something. I don't know how to deal with that. But basically, we shouldn't argue about it so much, right? So the diatessaron, was used by Syriac-speaking churches for 300 years. Some churches, that's the only thing they had. And it was used up until the 7th century. So this guy's one translation, harmonization of the Gospels, was used for like 500 years after he died. It was controversial. It wasn't like, oh, we have a Bible. Everybody's happy. No, it was controversial because he harmonized it all. And he didn't include every single detail from every single gospel. But all of this goes to show that there's always been controversy about which version of the Bible people use. People have been arguing about it for a very long time. Okay, so the Syriac Bible or the Aramaic Bible translated as early as the time of Jesus and used all over the ancient Near East, but mostly in places that we would think of as Middle Eastern now, Syria, Lebanon, Eastern Turkey, and maybe into Iraq, and down into Jordan, and those kinds of areas. That was all Aramaic-speaking areas. Okay, we're on to our last early translation of the Bible that we're going to talk about today. There's other ones that I really wanted to talk about, but we're definitely not going to have time. This last one, I think you'll recognize more than the others, and that is the Latin Vulgate. I made it very purposeful there. Latin. (laughs) Usually I say Latin. The Latin Vulgate. And this is the most famous of the early translations because it was the translation used by the Catholic Church from about 480 all the way until the Vatican II Council in 1979. (laughs) So used for 1300 years, guys, like this Bible, most famous Bible probably in the world, or maybe I should say the most famous translation in the world. So keep in mind, just from that mistake of mine saying earliest Bible, or most famous Bible, I should be saying famous translation. You have to distinguish in your brain between Bible and translation. A Bible, a particular version of the Bible, is going to be the same no matter where you find it. A translation just refers to which language it's in, right? So the earliest translation of the Bible would be into Greek, and we call all of those manuscripts and all of that version the Septuagint, which is very tricky. It makes it sound like there's one document somewhere, which there's not. The Vulgate is the Latin version, right? And it was written by a guy named Jerome, and he was the first guy to translate a Bible into Latin from Hebrew and Greek. This is very important because I didn't know this before. There were other earlier Latin versions of the Bible. Did you know this? I didn't know this. Those earlier translations into Latin are called the Old Latin versions. They were very popular and very well used by the Roman Empire and Christians in the Roman Empire, but they weren't straight from Hebrew and Greek. They used the Septuagint to translate into Latin. That means that it was a triple translation. It went from Hebrew to Greek to Latin for the Old Testament. 
And they didn't have to have that extra step in the New Testament because it was from Greek to Latin. It started in Greek and it ended in Latin. So there were previous translations, which is kind of like playing telephone, right? When you take a translation from Hebrew to Greek to Latin, you're going to get some wonkiness in there because now you have a language in between that dilutes it a little bit. It kind of softens down some edges, makes you not quite so sure what the starting point was. So Jerome, let's talk about Jerome just a little bit. Jerome was born in Italy, but traveled around a bit and eventually settled in Bethlehem, where most of his work was done on the Latin Vulgate. So he was in a place where he could learn Hebrew, and he did, and it took him 20 plus years to translate the Bible. And the Vulgate, you can relate it to the word vulgar. Vulgar just means common. And so Vulgate means common, language of the people, the common language. And that's why they called it the Vulgate. It was actually very controversial because people were familiar with the old Latin phrasing of the old Latin Bibles. Do you get the irony of this? There's been controversy about translations of the Bible forever, (laughs) since the very first translation of the Bible, okay? So people never like having their Bibles messed with. They get used to familiar phrases, and they don't like that to be changed. And they thought, people thought that Jerome didn't respect the inspired word of God. They saw their old Latin Bibles as being inspired, and him messing with it was messing with a good thing. Even respected church fathers were upset with him, like Augustine. Augustine, I've heard this name. I've been reading about him. If you don't know him, don't worry. Just know that he was a really huge figure in the early church history. Okay, very important guy. Even he was upset with Jerome. And he he wrote to him. He wrote letters to him to complain to him about writing this Vulgate. And he basically said, hey, there's nothing better than the Septuagint. How dare you not use the Septuagint for your translation? What, do you think you're going to find something better in the Hebrew? Stuff that translators didn't find before? Augustine specifically mentions in a letter to Jerome that, hey, you know, when you translated the book of Jonah, you know the story of Jonah where it talks about Jonah being so mad that God was going to save Nineveh that he went up on a hill and waited for the city to be destroyed and God was kind and he had a plant grow up over him? Now, I am totally happy if we just call that a plant, right? But in the Septuagint and therefore the old Latin translations, they called it a gourd. And in Jerome's Vulgate, he called it a kind of ivy, just different types of plants. Both of them are climbers. It's not a huge deal. But Augustine specifically mentions in his letter to Jerome that there was a riot in a church because of the difference between gourd and ivy. And Augustine was writing to Jerome to to say to him, look at the trouble you're causing. Like, why are you doing this? You're you're causing contention in the church. How dare you, sir? (laughs) And he was basically saying, you're messing with the church of God. So people have been arguing about translations forever, okay? There's been arguments about which particular phrases to use since before even the Vulgate. So 
All that to say, these are really important translations. Some of them are still in use today. The Septuagint, very important for even understanding how Jesus used his Bible. It's pretty interesting stuff if you sit back and think about it. Okay, so in our continuation with talking about what a Bible would physically look like, who would have one, how much it would cost, here we go. We're going to have another little installation of that information. So what would have a Bible looked like now at 500 AD? The last one we talked about was about the time of Jesus, so 30 AD. Now we're going to talk about what a Bible would have looked like at 500 AD. A lot of the stuff was still done in the same way as in the time of Jesus, Papyrus wasn't quite so used anymore. People knew how fragile it was. It just wasn't as durable. So most often the medium was still leather scrolls, still using scrolls. The big new invention of the time was the book, the codex, because we've referred to all of these things, papyrus, leather scrolls, and books, leather bound books or paperback books. We refer to all of these things as books. But when we talk about a book, something that we open from the right or left hand side and flip it open and you have different pages, this is called a codex, this specific type of book. And this was invented in Europe just in the couple hundred years after the time of Jesus. So by 500 AD, people were starting to make books of the Bible where it was a compilation of all of those different individual scrolls into one book. This was starting to happen right around 500 AD. So that's the form that we're talking about at this time. And they were using pages out of leather, okay? So it still wasn't a paper book, it was a leather book. Every page in it was leather. Now, you wanna talk about an expensive book a leather book where every page is made out of leather, it's an expensive book, but because it's in a codex form, it's easier to use, easier to reference, and it's all bound together. A scroll could only be so long to make it practical, but a book could be much bigger. So we're starting to look at Bibles being a whole compilation of every book in the Bible, including the New Testament. And now we'll talk about some of these practices. Jewish scribes were still copying the Old Testament, and they might have still been using scrolls. But here's an interesting point about it. If a Jewish scribe was writing another copy of, say, Jonah, we just talked about Jonah, and he noticed a typo that another scribe had made when copying this scroll. Now, it's pretty rare, but, you know, it happens. We're human. We're not going to write everything down perfectly. And there was no computers. They couldn't just delete and type it again. So if you didn't want to ruin an entire scroll when you found a mistake, which often they did, they would often throw it away. But sometimes these tiny errors weren't found. Now, if another scribe was copying this scroll and he found a typo, he was not allowed to change the typo. He was not allowed to change what he saw when he was copying down a new scroll. So they came up with a system to deal with this so that you would still be able to know, okay, the scribe thought there was a mistake here, so we know that there is a question about whether this is right or wrong. What they did was they would put a system of dots around a letter or around a word or in the margin to show that he thought there was a mistake made. So he wouldn't change it, but he would make note of it. 
So that's something to know about how a Bible was treated. But now I want to go back to this idea of the Bible being a book, a codex made out of leather. Pretty expensive, right? How expensive? (laughs) Oh boy, let me tell you. From the time of Jesus through the early church, having a whole New Testament, and we're just talking about a New Testament, would have cost a small fortune. It would have been about 200 to 250 pages of what they called vellum. Vellum is just another leather, but it's a it's a very nice leather. It can be one that's very fine, very thinly stretched, very good feeling, and very nice to write on. And it would be from sheep or goats, and one animal hide, one sheep or goat, would only provide about four pages. And there's a whole process to it of getting that leather ready, right? You'd have to scrape it to get it clean and smooth, soak it in lime to lighten it up, rub it with pumice or something else that is like pumice to smooth it out again. And it's a whole process here, right? And then you need one of those hides, one of those pieces of leather for every four pages. That means that you need, if you can quickly do the math, how many animals to get a New Testament? 50 to 60 goats to get an average sized Bible. Okay, 50 to 60 goats. I don't know how much a goat costs today, but imagine that's a whole flock of goats, right? And then there were other cultural things that were necessary. If you had a book like this made, you didn't just make a book and then slap a leather cover on it and be like, here you go, here's your Bible. Oh no, a rich person is making this Bible. And this is a highly revered book that's treated in a very special way. They had customs and traditions around what they did with Bibles. There was what they called illumination, which is calligraphy for capitals at the beginning of books. Like, you know, a fancy book, you can imagine a fancy book where the very first letter of the very first page of each chapter has a big letter. That's called illumination. And they would very often make it calligraphy and maybe painted with like gold leaf or a special dye like purple or red. And then sometimes they also put in pictures, which they called miniatures. And this is the way that books, the first books were made all the way up until the 1200s AD. So let me repeat what you need for a single New Testament to be made all the way up through the 1200s, right? You needed a whole flock of animals, (laughs) 50 to 60 goats or sheep, and several professional bookmakers to make one Bible. You would need a tanner, somebody who could make all of those pieces of leather, and then a bookmaker to put it all together, a scribe to copy it all down, and an artist to do the calligraphy and the miniatures, the little pictures now and again. So you'd need four professionals, and 50 to 60 goats to make one New Testament. Now tell me, who could afford to make that, right? Not everybody. So would each church even have a Bible? Probably not, unless they had some very uh, wealthy people in their church who would sponsor making a Bible for them. That's a possibility. So wealthy families would have a Bible, Wealthy churches would have a Bible, but this is not something that every family would have by far and not even every church. 
Okay, so there you go. Some more context on the early church, on what an early Bible would have looked like, and what versions the Bible was available in by 480. And there are a few other languages that the Bible was in, in those early couple hundred centuries after Jesus. But we'll mention those in another episode because we're going to attach some different information to those different translations that we have. Okay, so we'll stop there. You're welcome. I know this was a longer one. So we'll stop there. And I hope you guys have a wonderful day and I'll see you again next time. Bye.